Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by Mubi. With all the video content available today, why is it still so difficult to find something good to watch? Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day they introduce a new gem, and you have one month to watch it. Whether it's an acclaimed masterpiece, a cult classic, or a festival fresh darling, there are always 30 perfectly curated movies to discover on Mubi. Plus, delve deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews on Mubi's notebook. Try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash big picture. That's mubi.com slash big picture for your extended free trial. This was in a lot of ways, as many people pointed out, it's a heist movie and everybody is secondary to the plot. I'm Sean Fennessy, editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and this is The Big Picture, a conversation show with some of the fastest smugglers in the galaxy. Joining me today is the Han to my Greedo, bringing his takes across the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs. It's Ringer, art director, writer, editor, and host of Westworld The Recapables, The Press Box, and of course, The Masked Man Show. It's David Shoemaker. What's up, David? Uh, I'm just sitting here processing Han Solo, man. I don't so know what much else you could Han ask Solo. Me. That's why we're here because hokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good podcast at your side. And so we're going to guide people through Solo, a Star Wars story. And this is, you know, Disney's eagerly anticipated and complicated production of Han Solo's origin. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking through the pros and cons of this movie, spoiling throughout, I presume. And, you know, it doesn't really mean much. I think because we already know what the Han Solo story is. And that's kind of the quagmire of this movie, right, David? Right. Um, let's just start at the very beginning and say, what did you expect going in? And and did you enjoy yourself? I enjoyed myself very much. Um, and I think I, uh, you know, I, ha- I I didn't go in with really specific expectations because uh, as we discussed, I, you know, found out I was going 24 hours in advance. So I wasn't <laughs> like dwelling much. on it a lot. Um but I think this is about what I expected. I think this is about the minimum that I expected. Yeah, uh, that's that's a little terrifying, actually, that we have a we have a minimum. I think that this is. I th- we'll get into this more, but I think that that contra almost anything any other movie Star Wars could put out, there's so much just like there's so much assumed about a movie like this that it's hard for it to overachieve. Yeah, and I think also we knew quite a bit about the behind the scenes machinations, and we'll probably talk about that at length a little later in the show, but. Needless to say, there were some firings of directors, uh, <laughs> and there were some— <laughs> Two directors who worked together. You yes. Some more director <laughs> Not multi-director—well, two directors at, at one time, and right. they were replaced by Ron Howard. It's Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who, you know, people may know from the 21 Jump Street movies and mm-hmm. the Lego movie and Last Man on Earth. Brilliant uh, comedy writers and directors. They were replaced by Ron Howard, old hand, uh, old friend of the Lucasfilm family. And there was also a lot of curiosity and potential— undermining of Alden Ehrenreich, who fills in Harrison Ford's slot as young Solo. Before we get into the deep pros, and I think there are actually a lot of pros about this movie, and there are parts of it that I really genuinely thought clicked. Did you think Ehrenreich was a good Solo? I thought he was fine. He was. I think I went in expecting him to be the, the weak part of the movie, if only because all of the kind of horror stories that we have read about the behind the scenes, you know, the production of the film, seemed to... There were a few that sort of pointed him out, and the ones that didn't seem to be avoiding him in a sort of inauspicious way. And so I, I went in expecting him to be the worst part, and he was fine. He was he was he was good. 
Yeah, is fine good enough? I guess is an interesting question well, I, for the Star Wars universe. I don't know if fine. I don't know if fine is ever going to be good enough when you're dealing with a property like Star Wars, especially when we're the you know Harrison Ford came back to be in the prequel. I mean, to be in the sequels. And so we've recently been reminded of his charms, and so we know what he looks and sounds like as Han Solo. And so there's something yeah, something tricky there. And as much as George Lucas rightly gets lauded for creating this universe that. You know, everything, all of these movies have spun off of. And and frankly, as like silly as Mark Hamill is sometimes in the original trilogy, you know, I mean, just sort of corny. Like the the three core acting performances, the four, I guess, if you, I mean, counting Darth Vader, everything rests on that. You know, every, we, like it's impossible to imagine this expanded universe without Harrison Ford. And it's, so it's not just like, you know, a reimagined Disney character or something. This is a really core like acting performance that now we're trying to iterate on. Or I don't yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a it's a tough job. It's really the first time that we've had to deal with this problem because I think one of the things that the Star Wars the new Star Wars films have done particularly well is find Rey and find Finn and mm-hmm. find Kylo and find even Jin Erso from Rogue One, which was one of these sort of spin-off Star Wars stories, but that was a new character that we had no relationship to and we'd never seen. Mm-hmm. So we don't bring any preconceived notions. With Han Solo, Han Solo is like everybody's cool uncle. You know, Han Solo is like the the badass dude we wish would take us off and fly away on the Millennium Falcon together when we're sure. 13 years old. Sure. And Alden Ehrenreich, Alden Ehrenreich doesn't quite strike that tone, Um But we'll get into him a little bit later. Okay. Let's talk about the things that work well. I'm going to go through some of the things, and you tell me if you agree. The elephant in the room is is Donald Glover's Lando Calrissian, which I think is basically just a through-and-through success. Mm -hmm. Um, He is slick and funny and a gambler and a charmer and a liar in all the ways that Billy D. Williams is in the original trilogy. Yeah. And also, he he does do a thing that I think that the, this movie needs, which is even though the story set in the past, he modernizes the story a little bit. Absolutely true. Yeah. Um, do you, did you like Glover? Yeah, I thought he was great. I mean, of all the of all of the characters from the original trilogy that that we will that we have seen or we will see new takes on, I guarantee Lando's at the top of the list of like roles where actors are just like I would love to sink my teeth into that. You know, I mean, it's it was a fairly straightforward role, but there was, just, I mean, and, you know, there's also this great coolness to it, and there was a lot of, a lot more holes to be filled in with that character. Um, but I thought, you know, Glover did it spot on. He, it, he he was able to, like, give it some depth. You know, if you're if you're going to knock anything about, I don't know if it's even Ehrenreich or just the, the way that Han Solo was written, I think that, that in a way, like, they succeeded with Lando in a way that they weren't able to with Han Solo. Yeah, that's very just, true. Just a very, just a very subtle depth. But I don't know if you can do that with the amount of space that that you know Han was obviously going to get in this movie. Yeah, he's got to carry more weight for sure. And Lando gets to come in, and he gets to be charming, as I said, and slick. But also, he gets to be the butt of the joke. He gets to be comic relief. He has a lot of. He plays a lot of different. He wears a lot of different hats. He gets to be story. human in a yeah, way that he, he does. Yeah. And part of that is, I think, what Glover imbues, and I think he's just. Honestly, a better performer in the role. And Enric's not bad, but Glover is... We're in a Donald Glover moment, truly, in the last two or three months. Yeah, and, and, he, and he brings a lot of that with him. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know how, how easy it is to extricate. But but I think that he was, you know, he, he was very good. And he wasn't, you know, he, he was he was both true to the character and also just sort of being himself and... and I mean, not being himself, but take, doing his own little spin on it. He was a little bit, you know broader than maybe you would have expected. Thought it was really good. I liked the the amount of attention paid to his 
costuming, you know, uh-huh. his capes and all the clothes that he kept on the Millennium Falcon. And there, there, there was, I hadn't really given that any thought, but then when I rewatched Empire this week, I did notice that Lando's really, he's vamping. Oh, for sure. You know, he's got that sky blue cape and the, the cut down and the showing his chest off. And there's a lot yeah, of- Yeah, I mean, you wonder how much of those, how much of that is, I mean, I don't know the behind the scenes of making Empire. I don't, I don't know how those decisions were made. I, I, of all of the little, of all of the sort of passing notes from Empire or, or the original trilogy that they um, decided to define for us or explain for us in this movie, uh, the clo- sartorial choices, I, I could watch that stuff all day. Yeah. It's like, an, it's like when, uh, like, it is so, it's always silly, but it's all, but it's gratifying in a way. Like when you find out, I know this is kind of skipping ahead, but we find out how Han Solo got his name. And that was fine because they didn't waste that much time on it. But it was immediately felt unnecessary, like the moment they played that card or whatever. They were ticking some box that they imagined they needed to. Yeah. But, I mean, even though it's just as silly with the clothes, I mean, I flash back to um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where that opening sequence with River Phoenix explains why Indiana Jones dresses the way he does. Because that, like, guy who was chasing him was wearing that outfit and he gave him his hat and that uh, that whole thing. And that was just, like, so dopey. But it was perfect for that sort of this is a dime store novel, you know? I mean, that's what, and that, and it made, it, it was, it filled in the backstory in exactly the right way. And I felt, and, and, you know, with Lando, they kind of did the same thing. So one of the other backstory filling things that I really liked about the movie, and it's not, it's not a very long segment, but I thought it was a very effective segment is when the movie just turns into a war movie for 10 minutes. Um, I don't know that I, I did, one, I had no idea that that was going to be a factor Two, you know, we don't, we didn't know very much about Han as, you know, a pilot, working for the Empire, who then broke loose and became a smuggler, became a bandit, a thief. Mm -hmm. And the way that they handled all that stuff, I thought, was very fun. And it was a little shades of, like, I'm reluctant to say Saving Private Ryan, but it's a very intense kind of war dynamic that they're showing us. Yeah. I mean, I think I said to you when we walked out that in a lot of ways, this was a lot like Rogue One and more successful in some ways than Mm -hmm. Rogue One. There's something about not having it cast in the field of greys and, and and actually having it be a big sort of like that Ron Howard, you know, Technicolor sensation and then have it go into, you know, have that subsumed, like it consumed by a cloud of smoke. Did you find yourself wondering what was Lord Miller and what was Howard as you were watching? I didn't as I was watching. I did on the way out and it was kind of hard for me to separate the two. I don't know. You might have a better idea about that than me. I don't. I mean, I think we can talk a little bit more as we move through some of the things that don't work as well and kind of what it means to be a Ron Howard movie in 2018, which Mm -hmm. is not quite the same thing as what it means to be a Ron Howard movie in 1988, for example. Sure. But I did like that war movie stuff. And then there's just kind of a, there's a collection of high-level, high-toned character actors that dot the movie. Amelia Clark plays Kira. Mm-hmm. She is the love interest who is separated from Han and then eventually reunited with Han on a on this mission. They're joined on this mission by Woody Harrelson, who plays Tobias Beckett, who's sort of smuggler in chief and trains <laughs> right. uh, Han in the in the ways of stealing. Mm-hmm. Phoebe Waller Bridge, who many people know from Fleabag, is also one of the creator is the creator of Killing Eve. She plays a droid mm-hmm. named L three three seven. I really liked Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany plays Dryden Voss. He's 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 doing the same thing that Josh Brolin is doing right now, which is he's double dipping on franchise stuff in the same summer. Yeah. But this one is to a, a slightly lower hum. But Dryden hey, Voss, do, do these guys just have cabanas at the Disney, like on, on di- the the Disney <laughs> Studio footprint? I, I think they can afford um, yachts of their own at this <laughs> point. But yeah, Bettany is. Um, he plays an interesting villain who is essentially like a middleman. This has felt like the most, I mean, we have some Bettany content on the site, I think, when this podcast goes up. But Truly. This, 
This feels like the the most appropriate Bettany role that I've seen that I can remember in some time. He's a better villain than he is a hero. I prefer him in this role than to than as Vision, who, who is a character. You know, I think we talked about it on the last time we did yeah. a podcast. Is a bit imprecise mm-hmm. um, as characters go, but he's he's good as um, one of the heavies. Last night uh, we noticed that there was a CGI character named Rio Durant, and we couldn't quite land on who handles the voice of right. Rio. Uh, that is handled by John Favreau, right? Not also Pod Save America's yeah. John Favreau, <laughs> but the John Favreau of movie directordom. Um, I what'd you think of the uh, collection of characters in this universe? I thought it was good. Is this a spoiler-free podcast? I don't even know how we set this up. Are we, yeah, we're spoiling. We're spoiling. Yeah, All right, let's go. F- full spoilers. With the exception of Tandy Newton, I don't think anybody was under you underutilized. I well, one person. Who who are you going to say? Just just Tandy Newton. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, just Tandy Newton. And I but and and that's maybe only because her fame or or maybe the ringer's love for her is greater than the role that she was given. You're one of the foremost chroniclers of Tandy's work. Yeah, but may, but but in a way that was really effective. We didn't expect her to to pass on when she did. No, but everybody was sort of dispensable in the sense that this was it. This was in a lot of ways, as many people pointed out, it's a heist movie, and everybody is everybody is secondary to the plot. Yeah, I think that there's also something about, this was also true of Rogue One, where kind of if every character, with the exception of one primary character in that movie, I think it's Darth Vader, and in this movie it's Han Solo, if they all kind of die, it's okay. Because yeah. we're like, this is the past. We're not in the future anymore. We're, mm-hmm. We don't have to worry about what's coming next because we know that this is already over. And it gives you some liberty to kind of you know, dispense with certain characters whenever you want to. And I think that there's something fun and freewheeling about that, but there's also something that makes it just feel completely stakes-free. And I found myself struggling with it at times. It's like when when, when well, Val, Val Tanny Newton's character died, I was like, well, shit. I was just kind of getting invested in this person. And then you interrogate it for one more second, and you're like, well, it doesn't matter. We were never going to see her nah, again. Never, yeah, and, and the— the makers of this film, at least, uh, you know, in whatever combination you want to place yeah, them, which were, ones? were aware of this, right? Because they played with that. They played with those expectations when they had Han giving Kira the dice, you know, the golden dice at the beginning. Your reaction was like, well, now we know she's not going to die. And it was, you know, it was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like, we know that we'll see her again. At the same time, you knew you were going to see her again. Why would you else would you introduce Amelia Clark in scene she's one? She's Daenerys Targaryen. Yeah, yeah, but— but they played with that because they, you know, they had that exchange and then they, and then, but that wasn't the first, that wasn't the last time they were exchanged, right? I mean, it kept, it kind of kept coming back and that, and, and what, and the fact that he gave her that plot armor in, in the opener didn't really affect what happened for the rest of the movie. So they were kind of playing with those expectations a little bit, but I don't know that they, they didn't undermine them or anything. I mean, it wasn't like an overly wisecracking move or anything to do it that way. No, I mean, and it I, wasn't playing with the archetype. I don't mean to, um, say that there's like a character apocalypse at the end of this movie either because there's not. There's still, there's a lot of resonant stuff that happens and there's a lot of people that stick around. I just find it's a little bit, um, we're in a little bit of a, like a nihilistic moment with uh, these franchise movies, especially mm-hmm. post-Infinity War where it's like you really want to show people how to how to go to the next level. It's just like <laughs> just kill all the people you fell in love with except for one. Yeah. Um, and there's something weird about that. There isn't one more weird crossover with Infinity War here that I learned when I was reading about this after the fact, which is that at the beginning of the movie, um, we learn that Han is sort of indebted to a local gangster on his home planet of Corellia. Uh-huh. And the name of that gangster, who's played by, who's voiced by Linda Hunt of oh, wow. NCIS LA and kindergarten cop fame, uh, is Lady Proxima. Uh-huh. And the name of Carrie Coon's character Midnight? is Proxima Midnight. 
in Infinity War, you'd think that they would kind of get on the same page there, Disney, and not overlap. Is Lady, it, Lady Proxima is not canon in Star Wars world, is she? She might be. I am not the the, the Star Wars expanded universe uh, expert here. Okay. One other thing I really liked. they The Chewbacca and Han origin story is good. I thought that that scene was great. The way that they come together, they're thrust into a cage together. It's like shades of... Um, Luke having to do battle with a beast in a cage in the in the in the first trilogy, mm-hmm. but in this in this way, Han makes a friend, the the giant Wookiee. Yeah, I I dug that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the line the movie walks, and like I said, I was I was fine with it. I mean, I I, I really enjoyed the film. I, I think that we knew. I mean, we knew so much of the stuff. We knew we were going to find out about it. I mean, you could have guessed you're going to find out how he got his name. We knew we were going to get Chewbacca. You know, we knew the the Millennium Falcon was going to be there. You knew Lando was going to be there. On the one hand. Yeah, we've all been to opening nights of like I remember going to opening nights of of the prequel trilogy, and every time a recognizable character came on the screen, it was just a round of applause. Or going to see the re- when they did the re-release of the original trilogy, every Admiral Ackbar comes on the screen, everybody stands up and applauds. You know, I mean, it's these this ridiculous reactions that that the diehard fans have, and and so on the one hand, maybe Solo was coasting on those expectations a little bit. You don't need to go too far. Because you know that you're going to get the, these incredible reactions from the people who really care. But on the other hand, you know, if they if they had made it a bit made a bigger deal of any of this stuff, if it had been more dramatic, would it have been better? I mean, it certainly would have. There could they could have done it in a more memorable way. I don't know. I think a lot of this stuff is tonal. We're going to get into the ups and downs. There are some downs <laughs> um, in just a minute. I have one more shout out, and that's for the game of Sabak. Oh yeah, which uh, I want to learn how to play. And is a crucial in understanding how Han and Lando begin to trade ownership of the Millennium Falcon over time. I, I this is both a nitpick and a praise. It's a card game, obviously, and there's a lot of gambling in this movie. I'm mm-hmm. I'm an I'm an avid gambler, David. I love to play poker. Understood, yeah. And there is this is a poker game more or less. However, we can't read the meaning of the cards and we don't know how the game works. And so they, this movie creates all of the atmosphere of a classic poker scene in a movie, but we have no idea who's winning at any given time because the cards don't mean anything. Well, and also we only, we're only paying attention to two of the characters. Right. And, I mean, if you want to, all, with all of the uh, flack that, you know, characters like Ray have gotten for being flawless protagonists in, in this new iteration of movies, Han's ability just to sit down and, like, Ace like destroy everybody at a card game, which he had played before, presumably. But still, we don't know. We I Han's guess just so. good at all the things he tries to do. I mean, the an interesting part about the movie is for all of the backstory that they like dug in on. They literally skipped the section where he learned how to pilot things and play cards and, 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 and fire a blaster. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's kind of, he's kind of the Mary Sue here, isn't he? he for sure. I mean, I, I don't want to get too much into the like the bad stuff of the movie yet. If if you don't want to go there, but to me, all of the anxiety surrounding the movie. From a storytelling perspective, is basically for at least from my point of view, is that Han Solo doesn't need a backstory. Of all of the characters in the original trilogy, like Han Solo is the one that's like self-explanatory. He's the archetype, you know. He's the he's the we see he did a bunch of stuff and then he like fell in love and turned good. Like I don't, it's it's pretty straightforward. That dovetails very neatly with my theory that. Ron Howard saved this movie, and then maybe we'll get into whether this movie needed saving after the break. Hello! There's a new show coming to Adult Swim called Joe Para Talks With You. It's a quiet show about Joe and his friends and the things in his life, like breakfast foods, rocks, weddings, being woken up by thunder, grilled chicken, pumpkins, fall drives, and more. Now here's a personal request from Joe. Please watch. 
Joe Para talks with you Sundays at midnight on Adult Swim. Okay, we are back on the big picture with David Shoemaker. Shoemaker, <laughs> we're talking solo. Yeah. We're a duo talking solo. Yes. And we're going to talk about some of the things that don't work in this movie. I feel like I've been downbeat for the whole podcast. I really enjoyed I know, this you're going to talk positive stuff about the yeah. negative stuff. Maybe we can counteract each yeah, other. Yeah, let's, fl- let's flip it. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just going to share with you some of my broad feelings. I think Ron Howard saved the movie but also failed the movie. It, David Scoff has a profile of Howard in the New York Times today. And... Here's what Kathleen Kennedy, who is the Lucasfilm honcho and producer, told Dave that the movie needed. Somebody who is going to be non-threatening and very collaborative, and most importantly in this case, somebody who really deeply understood actors and performance and the cast could feel very quickly comfortable and safe with. Now, is non-threatening really the number one phrase you want used about your filmmaker on your franchise property? Oh, God, that's tough. I that really put my antenna up, and I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll, clearly that had more to do with his with the people that came before than s- certainly. I mean, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, as we said, were the were the filmmakers who were originally signed onto the project, and they didn't write this script. The script is written by uh, Lawrence Kasdan and his son Jonathan. Yeah, and Lawrence Kasdan famously is the Han Solo whisperer. He wrote. Um, some of the very best Han lines around. He's been an integral part of the new trilogy of movies that they're making, and he's been a consigliere and to And I mean, to regardless JJ. of what you thought about the movie overall, the, the script here was, I mean, this has to be one of the best script. I mean, for, I, for— I neglected to mention that, but I actually was going to say that when we talked about them. I think the dialogue is really good in this movie. Dialogue is spot on. Uh, contra— um, every Star Wars movie that's come before, at least the core, the, 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 the core movies— I there, think Last there, Jedi is very has a very good script, but this is this is right up there. Last Jedi is a very good script, but the central but the entire plot is built around a slow motion space chase. Yes, and you spend your whole the whole time trying to like imagining ways around it. The the two central the two action set pieces of this were so easy to follow for what they were. The stakes were very clear. Throughout the movie, there is not a moment in this film where I was just like, now why are they flying this airplane? To, I mean, this spaceship to this place? It's a, like, great, it's a great point. And that gets lost because we have such admiration for the earlier films. But some of it is just inscrutable yeah. or, or poorly told, even though we get very involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree with that. But I, there's something in the directing that is flat. And if you look at Ron Howard's last, I don't know. 10, 15 years worth of films. We, we have this great vision of him as like, he's the man behind Splash and, you know, he's the man behind uh, Beautiful Mind, which was an Oscar winner. And yeah. Apollo 13, one of the best movies in the 90s. You know, he's made a lot of very resonant, important movies. He's also made a lot of movies that are just kind of like prestige fluff. Yeah. You know, the, the, uh, the Cinderella Man of it all. And there is yeah. a little bit of like Cinderella Man perfunctory look and storytelling to the movie that I, I worry kind of drags it down. I mean, I don't know how far afield you can really go in the cur- in the current Star Wars universe. When we saw the when we saw the first trailer for this that was released, and Ron Howard, this was after you know Ron Howard was deeply involved at that point. My reaction on you know Ringer Slack was that this might be the most visually interesting Star Wars movie yet, and how weird if that was Ron Howard that that pulled it off. Well, the cinematographer is Bradford Young, who might be the most exciting cinematographer in Hollywood. He shot Arrival, uh-huh. and 
it, the movie, when it looks beautiful, I think it looks beautiful in part because of him. You know, he's bringing in these shades of like westerns and shades of contemporary sci-fi. Sure. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, all these like. I mean, there were backgrounds in this movie. I will buy that coffee table book to stare at. Yeah, them. there's some beautiful stuff for sure. But even still, I think there's like a, basically a pace and a way a story is told and a cam- and the way the camera moves that a cinematographer can only do so much. And a director has a style. Oh, no, I, yeah, and the second half of what I was going to say is the movie itself was not nearly as visually stunning as the, as the trailer was. Yes. I mean, it was, it was fine, but it felt like, I, th- I said this to you when we walked out, I, it's a, it's a, there's a sort of very crisp technicolor flatness that a lot of the sort of like great directors of the 80s have, you yeah. know, and, and, and they evolve and the cinematographers change and the, you know, all the, all the other people working on the film roll over at some point with a lot of these people. But it's still, to me, in 2018, it is what prestige television looks like. You know, it, it felt very much, it felt more like, it felt more like an episode of The Walking Dead than it felt, I mean, visually, than, than it did like a major motion picture, like Blade Runner 2049 or something. Absolutely. That's a great comparison point. It's like a contemporary kind of sci-fi opera, which is, you know, I think actually probably a less quote unquote watchable movie because it's so slow and it's kind of arcane and the story that it's telling. And it's, it's a less interested in the traditional modes of like, um, crowd pleasing, Mm -hmm. but man, it's just a way more impressive accomplishment than this movie, which is like a a popcorn movie and fine. Um, one of, sort of related to that, one of my major criticisms, I think, of the movie in general is the the just deep sameness that it has to every other Star Wars movie. It's like there's a big scene in the desert, and there's a cabaret <laughs> act, and there's a speeder race, and there, there well, are the creatures. Cabaret, yeah, there's some of those you forgive, right? The cabaret act is is a deliberate wink. The rest totally. of it, the rest of it, I don't. I mean, it's it's hard to know. I mean, are they working off of off of a you know the diagram that they need that they're honor bound to stick to or something I'm not quite sure I don't know I don't is there is there like a a checklist that they have market tested where they say like this movie needs a speeder race if we don't get a speeder race in here we're not being Star Wars canon yeah I mean I think you're talking about the beginning of the movie yeah yeah I mean I think that that served a purpose that served more of a purpose than a lot of the other stuff just kind of you know it's it's it echoed what came later but it was the small version it was the 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 gritty down and dirty version Tony Scott described it as uh, sort of an a, a living embodiment of a Bruce Springsteen song at the beginning you know two <laughs> teens kind of blowing town on their in their in their Harley or in their racer. Um, yeah, I don't, the, the, their ages, are we going to talk about their ages at some point in this Yeah, thing? not yet. All right. We're going to get there. We'll, I, we'll I, close I, with that. I, I, t- I take issue with the teens, but you can move on for now. Maybe they're not teens. That's a great question. I think also related to that is, before I saw the movie, Chris Ryan, our, our colleague, said, if this is a neo-Western, I want to know. There's this great shot in the movie where there's a showdown near the end where they, they're toe-to-toe with the marauders who are trying to get this hyper fuel, which again is like one of the dumber kind of central points of interest in the movie. Yeah, but at the same time, it was like, it's it's a MacGuffin, but it's still like, it, it, it actually had some identifiable characteristics and it was, it wasn't for them to decide what was valuable. This is a thing that another person wanted. And it does connect us ultimately to the rebels and the future of the Star Wars universe. Right. I liked that part of it. I thought it was well handled. But anyway, there's a showdown with the Marauders and Han and, and Tobias and all of these characters that we've come to know. And there's this beautiful shot of Han kind of fingering his blaster. Mm-hmm. And in the distance, we have a high noon vision of the Marauders. And it's like, it's real classic American, like John Ford Western yeah. stuff, really nicely told. That is like not what the movie is. And the movie really has no genre. It doesn't even have, and, and uh, something I wrote down is like, you know, it's one part Western, it's one part Teen Rebellion. 
it's one part war movie, it's one part heist movie. Yeah. But it's like, is it like ultimately no parts Star Wars? <laughs> I mean, in the sense that like it, it was grounded in a way, and this goes back to what I was saying about the script being very precise. I mean, it was grounded in a way, um, not always literally, that made it that did make it seem different than Star than than the Star Wars movies that have come before. Mm-hmm. But Star Wars have all Star Wars has always been a sort of you know street level science fiction, not entirely, but there's always been elements of that. You know, we got battles on in forests and stuff. It's never been like quite so puckish you know there's something like un- yeah. underdoggy about the way I mean, that I this think, is positioned uh, despite what i said before about Han Solo not needing a backstory I, I do think it's in, i mean it's interesting that like this is what this is in so many ways the movie that i would have asked for if you when i when disney bought lucasfilm you know i mean i want i would have wanted just little dalliances into genre. That's it. I want, I mean, maybe, maybe I would want something a little bit more on the, no- I mean, not on the nose, but a little bit like more, something that's more specifically a Western or more specifically a heist movie or something. But I don't mind them doing a mashup of those genre things. I think it, it felt like a letdown because our expectations for a character like Han are so high. Mm-hmm. I think that's perceptive, and, but I do worry that they've worked so hard on the last three movies before this to make them events. You know, we, to make them events, but they, but like events that like, I mean, I love them all, but but ever, but all, but most, of, you know, ninety percent of the complaints about them were justified. Mm-hmm. If your only complaint about this one is it like it's not, it wasn't as 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 much of an event as the other ones, but like everything else went off smoothly, then I think that's that's in, that's the kind of success, I, or that's the kind of failure I want more of. I have two sides of my brain working on this one. I have the side of my brain that just wants to have fun at a movie, and then the other side of my brain that's like. What does this mean for the future of Star Wars? <laughs> and what is not only that, but like, what does this mean for the future of Hollywood? Sure, because the, so much of the stuff that I've been writing about for the last couple of years, and so much of what the center of the industry is about, is like whether these movies succeed and fail, and how much they succeed and how much they fail. Right. And my gut tells me that Han Solo, that Solo, a Star, a Star Wars story, will be the lowest grossing of the four Star Wars movies to, that are, that will have since come out since. Um, since the new it's enterprise, it's going to do worse than than Rogue One. Rogue One made a billion dollars inter- internationally. Solo, man. I I don't know. You mean you've probably seen projections that I haven't seen, but I I would have. High, I mean I I think that they could just have they could have spent this whole movie with him, you know, frozen and what's it called it with, with carbonite? Yeah, carbonite. Yeah, it's possible. I don't sleep I, anymore. I, I could, I'm just saying they could, could they be could wrong. Do nothing and people would go out to see Han Solo. I could be wrong, but the buzz is medium. The reviews are medium. The fan and excitement right. seems medium. You're right. The, 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 the expectations are tepid. But I, don't, I wonder how much that matters for the international audience. Well, I think Rogue One actually worked really well for the international audience, in part because of the way they cast that movie, the main characters that they created. It was a huge movie in Asia, in part because two of the primary characters are Asian mm-hmm. or Asian-American actors. And this doesn't do all of that as well. It certainly has the Donald Glover thing in its favor, and it certainly has Game of Thrones in its favor. Both of those are very savvy tactical choices Mm -hmm. maybe also Paul Bettany for all the vision heads out there they're bringing in the MCU fans Um, but I I, I have some doubts and that's part of what is clouding I think my take on the movie Um, I don't we don't have to slag it too much more but we do have to talk about the thing that cropped into my mind basically right at the end of the movie which is we get a guest appearance by a notable character that we've seen before and that character that character is not Greedo no. And he is not Boba Fett. Mm-mm. And he's not Jabba the Hutt. Nope. Three core Han Solo story characters. Sure. 
it's, you, gotta, you it, gotta wait to see them. It's Darth Maul. Yes. Darth <laughs> Maul last seen split in two by Obi-Wan Kenobi and thrust down, I don't know, some sort of shaft where he exploded at the end of The Phantom Menace. Right. Darth Maul is introduced in this movie when Kira makes a choice to align herself with Crimson Dawn, which is also somehow in league with the Sith and probably the Empire. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the Darth Maul thing, and for a very simple reason. How old are all these fucking people? I, the answer is the, it, then don't, is to stop asking those questions. <laughs> well, Darth Maul, the answer is, is, is sincerely that Darth Maul survived being cut in half. You think that that's no, true? No, no, I know that that is true. All of the Clone Wars animated series, he, I mean, he, he, he has appeared in canon Star Wars after he was cut in half. Is that true? Yes. Okay, that's very confusing because when I walked out of the movie, I was like, at this exact moment, if Darth Maul's still alive, that means Han Solo is how much older than Anakin Skywalker, who is Luke's father? Yeah, I was having trouble doing this because I kept because tr- at first I was trying to uh, getting Luke and Anakin confused when I was doing the math. The whole thing becomes really problematic. I actually have a Star Wars age chart pulled up somewhere somewhere oh, on my browser. How exciting! But no, I the the, the Clone Wars stuff was afterwards. He has he has like robot spider legs, and this was basically them saying, um, I believe that like the Clone Wars is the car- the cartoon series is canon, and Darth Maul is still alive. This really makes my head hurt. Uh, that's easier than the than the direction that you were taking before. I, what did you think in general of like thirty seconds of hologram Darth Maul? Were well, you like this is cool or this is perfunctory or what? I think because it asks so many questions, it's a little bit less cool. I mean, for so many of the people watching it, it's so many. It's 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 a less of a moment than Darth Vader showing up. Um, I don't really know who else you have to work with at this point. I had that exact thought too because Rogue One. I think some people feel like is good or maybe just mediocre or, you know, it doesn't necessarily always do all the things that we want it to. And that movie also had a fascinatingly complex production history where Gareth Edwards, the filmmaker, was removed and Tony Gilroy was brought on for rewrites and reshoots and they kind of changed a lot of that movie, including the ending. And I think one of the things that they added to the end of that movie is this button scene with Darth Vader where we see Darth Vader really like in all of his evil glory and power. Mm -hmm. And I am a 36-year-old man, but when he came on screen and started throwing people around, I was like, yes. Yeah, this sure. Is, this is, I'm here, I'm ready for this. I'm yeah. excited by this. I like it. And I, the Darth Maul callback is meant to have a similar effect. It's like, sure, we're in an origin story, but don't forget, there's cool shit that's going to happen because of like cool bad guys or the the, <laughs> the, the pain to come. Yeah. And I this didn't really do that for me. No, I mean, if they were going to, if they were going to leave the audience, leave so much of the audience leaving asking questions... They should have just given us something wacky. Just like, is that evil Obi-Wan Kenobi? <laughs> or like, you know, just something yeah. something weird, you know? I would have been down have with that. Have Sam Jackson survive or, you know, something. Like, just like give us, but but because Darth Maul was just, um, like once you know, once you understand that he that we're accepting the Clone Wars, I mean, it's accepting the spider leg story, then yeah, the, the, then the mystery's gone, sort of. You know, I mean, it's cool to see him, but I don't know. It's, I mean, I guess it's this. It's, it's in some ways it could be symbolic of them sort of fixing, you know, feeling like they're fixing the problems with the prequels. Do you want to see more of Kira and Darth Maul's team up in the future? Oh yeah. Do you want to see more young Han Solo? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that seems mildly enthusiastic. I I was getting at this earlier. I, the whole thing felt I, I as, as much as I enjoyed it, it felt like this felt like an eight episode TV series. Yeah. And, and I and 
I mean, you know, if they did this with the Disney over the top channel or something, just like give me, it just gave us six episodes of, of Han, that would get me watching. I think that's fair. And, you know, the movie that we know we're going to be getting is Lando, is the Donald Glover Lando movie. Oh, the, yeah, because the, they've more or less announced More or less announced yeah. that. Um, is that interesting to you? Like, is it worth sacrificing a season of Atlanta or maybe every season of Atlanta going <laughs> forward and Childish Gambino to get a, to get a Lando movie? I mean, do you think we're going to have to sacrifice anything? I do. I actually do. I think that it would be very— Because he'll be so involved? Yes. I think it will be very hard to make a Lando movie and do an, an, a season of television. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if we never got another series season of Atlanta anyway. It just feels like—I mean, not. it just feels like it's a huge emotional drain on him, and if he finds something else to do, that's fine. Maybe we'll come back like, like some other shows in three years or something and do it again. It's a lot of money in Lando. Yeah. That's what that's what they used to say back in the 19th century. <laughs> um, no, but I'm I'm excited to see it. I think that it would be. Uh, there's two ways to do it. I mean, I'd like to see Donald Glover just get total carte blanche. I kind of find it hard to imagine that's going to happen. If it's not going to happen, then I would love to see you know, a sort of Marvel Comics universe version of this where we get 20 solid minutes of Han in the movie, you know, in a Lando movie, or just some other crossovers. Make this this can be the. You know, have him teaming up with somebody else that we know and love from another movie. That would be that would be cool too. Final question for you. All right. In the past, talking with with Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald to some extent, mm-hmm. they've, they're they're very Team Wedge Antilles as their <laughs> ancillary <laughs> Star Wars character. For some reason, they've got a real real hankering for the Wedge story. Is there like a Star Wars character oh story gosh. that you'd love to see a movie for? I feel like I've t- I feel like I've spent more time like checking people off my list mm-hmm. than I have like just pining for a specific person. I mean, I was definitely like I would have been Boba Fett if you would ask me before the prequels. Yeah, me too. And even after the prequels, I think you get you, you kind of came down from that or, you know, recovered from those and and I still love them, but I I don't know. I mean, I'm 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 more interested in um I mean, I think Lando could be done. I mean, I think of the, the the comic books that Marvel has done since they took over the thing. I mean, the Darth Vader comic book has been just fantastic, or at least the beginning was, and, and the Lando comic book has been really cool too. Um, I'm still more. I mean, I think that there's a lot of cool stories that they could tell. I'm not. I'm not partial to anything. My vote yeah. is for uh, Michael Hanukkah's Sarlacc pit. It's <laughs> <laughs> a very specific take. You think that would be good? No, that would be terrible. Okay. Well, this has not been terrible. This has been The Big Picture. This is David Shoemaker. I'm Sean Fennessy. Thanks, David. Thank you, man. Hello. There's a new show coming to Adult Swim called Joe Paratalks with You. It's a quiet show about Joe and his friends and the things in his life, like breakfast foods, rocks, weddings, being woken up by thunder, grilled chicken, pumpkins, fall drives, and more. Now here's a personal request from Joe. Please watch Joe Paratalks with You, Sundays at midnight on Adult Swim.